uh, Oswald. Awesome. Whoa. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> That's funny. That was funny. <laughs> that surprised me. It looked like the garage door fell down on him. No, it's the, I have this light propped up. I think there we should go. keep that in the podcast. And it fell down. Yeah, definitely we should. Definitely. So I was saying. Jesus declares that on occasion, a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. Hey friends, welcome to episode three of season two of the Disciples Made podcast, Five Shifts a COVID-19 World Requires. Today we are looking at the second shift that we're recommending in order to be less vulnerable to storms that will come in the future. And the shift is from professionals to all of God's people, from professionals to all of God's people. What Rob and I are doing in this, kind of surprising each other with a couple of questions about this. I've got two questions for Rob. He's got two questions for me. We haven't shared what these things are, so we can be a little bit more off the cuff. And so, Rob, real quickly, just as far as introduction is concerned, this doesn't count as one of my questions, by the way. Okay, bonus. So you actually have three coming. Tell us real quickly, what does it mean to go from professionals? Who are the professionals and what does it mean to all God's people? Just a very quick 30, 45 second summary there. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to go a little longer. That means okay, it's that, three to so five the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I think to rightly understand the Bible, to read it the way Jesus read it, which is the goal, is to understand the Bible as a meta-narrative. And it's the story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, reveals this who God is, who we are, where this is going, and how we should live in light of all that. But there's themes that run through the Bible. And one of the themes uh, that I think there's five or six major themes. I may write a book on this someday, but one of them is what I would call the priestly narrative or the priestly theme. Runs from the very beginning to the end of the book. We could do a whole series of podcasts on that. But long and short of it is we're given a priesthood early on in the story. And there's even like this mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Am I saying it right? Yeah, we had a song in church camp growing up. Who the heck's Melchizedek? Yeah, yeah. It's like, who is this guy and how is he a priest? And where did he come from? It's this like mysterious icon. And then it becomes more formalized. And the priests are mediating between God and his people because there's a need for mediation because of fall, because of brokenness, because of stain and imperfection and sickness. And and as the story moves forward, that was only meant to be a temporary signpost. And Jesus becomes the final mediator and he removes the barriers. And then we all get this massive, mind-blowing promotion where we are all priests. Priesthood of believers. Priesthood of believers. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around how much this would have meant to God's people. Because Jesus is doing stuff in the New Testament that you just can't go and do. Like, he's forgiving sins. And it's like, you can't forgive sins. No, there's a there's a lot of rules and regulations, and there's a certain class of people. And who do you think you are? It'd be like me going, hey, Brian, I'm giving out driver's license and passports. Do you need one? <laughs> You'd be like, Bro, you can't do that. And now, according to the New Testament, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we actually can. Like, we, we can enter into these, what were God-ordained, only for a few responsibilities and mission. So what we're saying is God's people, every single one of them, there, there is no distinction. There is no class. There is no caste system. 
we are all beloved sons and daughters. We are all priests. We are all the light of the world. We are all more than conquerors. We should not accept a hidden caste system in the church. We alluded a little bit to that in episode one, so you might want to go back and check that out. Well, I'll, Rob, do you want to go first with your question? So one of the main ways that we try to get people activated into ministry and mission in the prevailing model of church is what you would call volunteerism. So we invite people to try to take on what hopefully is a meaningful role in one of the initiatives of the church. And you step in and typically it's a certain amount of hours per month. And hopefully you're not just like thrown in like chum in the water. <laughs> like hopefully there's maybe a team leader, maybe there's some training. I'm talking best case scenario. It might even, maybe you did even a little gift assessment. So you're plugged into something that kind of fits who you are. So I'm trying to paint best picture scenario. So best picture scenario, you know, when is volunteerism really helpful and okay? But also, when is it domesticating and disempowering? And how have you seen that in your in your life as a, a pastor who's had oversight of this stuff? You've been in charge of mobilizing God's people into ministry and mission. So when is it like, wow, that was super helpful. And then looking back, you go, oh, man, I actually was disempowering people. Oops. I think the concept of volunteerism, let me start with unhelpful. This volunteerism as you just described it, becomes unhelpful when it's the full extent of opportunity that people have to live out their priesthoodness. Like if if the list of volunteer roles in your church is the exhaustive list of ways people can even imagine, not just participate, but even imagine that they can participate in the building of the kingdom of God, then it has become extraordinarily deadly. Because you haven't released heaven's picture of what these people could personally do to accomplish their priesthoodness in their lifetime. You've uh, basically said, here's the imagination we have as a few. And that would really, it would curtail things. Let me ask a pointed question. Sure. So in other words, if you create a ministry mobilization pathway, that pretty much just ends with volunteer roles. And there's no equipping to move beyond that. There's no vision to really move beyond that. It's like, whether it's stated or unstated, if the people in your church pretty much think the end goal is to be a really active volunteer, you're saying that's actually dangerous. When I did that, I had the absolute best motive and had the absolute best understanding. I truly did believe that the community redemption happened through the local church. And those roles helped spur the local church up and make it a bigger and more effective and the more bigger, the more effective we were in the community. But what I saw happen as I opened that up inadvertently, like we started to develop character and calling. Calling is this thing, you know, what are your top two gifts in your area of passion? And when people's area of passion ended up being, well, how do I help create processes in the marketplace for Andy's story that we've talked about on numerous different occasions? How do we let Andy go and have his primary calling of helping folks on the autism scale find meaningful employment? Like that changed the marketplace. That's how we actually get into the nooks and crannies of all of society is when we let God's spirit direct how people would live out that priesthood. You know, as church leaders, our imagination isn't big enough to contain the ideas that God has for his people. We just can't. We've got so much that we need to accomplish within that organization. And God's saying, I've got so much I want to accomplish out here. Would you quit hoarding my people? And so... You know what I hear you saying too, is like when we create a mobilization pathway, the end game should actually be gospel saturation in our city and world. Without a doubt. It's, it's not, did we fill all the slots in the program? 
It's are we actually unleashing God's people into their unique calling to bring the beauty and justice and good news of Jesus into every corner of culture where God has sent them? That's a totally different end game. Like if we begin with that end in mind, we'll probably end up designing our mobilization systems really differently. Yeah, I was just on a coaching call with somebody yesterday, and he's talking about the different uh, pockets of different people that have been kind of imported from different countries around the world for economic reasons. And he's like, well, we got to figure out a way to meet these people and figure out a way to meet these people. And he had this heart and this burden of how to figure it out. And when I gave him this answer, I was like, well, you can either try to figure that out as a church and how to do it. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a really good thing. Or you can just start to help people learn from the spirit what they're top two gifts and their area of passion is and set them free to start doing way, way more than that. And it was kind of a little bit of a head scratcher for them uh, as it was for me. You know, I thought everything had to happen through the church. Well, that statement's true, but does it have to happen through my local church? Well, probably not in the definition that you're thinking of, which means we have planning meetings and, and we get people that are volunteers and we get the think tank and we might even go all the way to getting a full APES representation on that task force to accomplish that thing. But it's still all happening through that local organization. And we're saying, no, that the church is God's people who are tasked with the privilege of being filled with Jesus. And then as we talk an awful lot from Ephesians chapter one, to fill the whole earth in every way, we just have to fill every person with Jesus and they go out and they fill the earth with Jesus in the ways that God's called them to. So that really is the end point. So you said, when's it dangerous? It's when we limit that potential. When is it, when is volunteerism good? This is such a huge insight that I got early on. When volunteerism is a step toward personal calling development or a step in the process of personal calling. We uh, actually, the church where I was a part of, we always said this is an incubator for personal calling. It's a way for you to get relationally connected to people through a task in order to be tapped for disciple making in which you would start to develop your personal calling. That's so good. It's so good. It's, it's an incubator. It's a it's a boot camp. And it's important because we, we should contribute to the church body. Like it's all hands on deck. It's not like, hey, uh, I'm just here to sit and coast and receive. It's like, no, no, get get in the game. Get started. Get going. Learn some best practices. Learn what it's like to be on a team. All these things. I think Peter got invited by Jesus to be a part of it because of his bias for action. I remember Heibel sharing that at one point, which is one of the big ideas that I learned from him that has just stuck throughout the ages. And I wanted to see who are the people that are biased for action. Those are the people that God's probably prompting. What will they do? Well, they'll probably sign up to volunteer. Okay, well, how do we make that not the destination? But how do we make that a point along the journey toward personal calling? And, and that's where I think volunteering is such a hugely helpful strategic point in the life of a local congregation. Thanks, bro. Super helpful. So I'm going to wind the tape back a little bit with this uh, first question to you, Rob. I was going to ask, why is professional such a powerful thing? But I think we really tapped into that in week one. Let's go back even further. How did it happen? Okay, so here's a little bit of context. There's always been leadership in the church. So at some point, leadership, which is eldership, presbyteros, episcopos, all the different forms of familial, not familiar, but familial type, family type of authority structures that were there. And, and those were the names given to it. When in the history of the church did those biblical, helpful, healthy, impervious, as we like to say on this particular season, forms of leadership turn to professional? And then what good things has professional accomplished? Like when when did we shift from those natural forms of leadership to professional? And what are some of the good things that come out of it? Which don't worry about answering the other ones because question two has something to do with the other side of that. First of all, I think it's happened multiple times. 
But I think there was a key moment early on, about 300 years into the church's history. I think it was called the Edict of Milan. Constantine is converted. His mom becomes what you might call a raving fan uh, for the church and for the Christian faith. The bishops at that time shook hands with the empire and it became the official religion of the empire. And then the church began to be remade in the image of empire. So that's where you have the introduction really of a priestly caste again in a significant way. That's where the church is given buildings. They're quite opulent actually. And then the church gets to control the calendar, right? So now there's kind of this restoration of high holy days. And so I think that was a significant turning point. Prior to that, the church was a marginalized, persecuted movement. It was grassroots. It was at at the edges. Again, the primary form is just these extended spiritual families. And the gospel keeps hitting these different networks of relationships. And it literally is like yeast in the dough. And what's really profound about that moment is the church had turned the Roman Empire upside down without any kind of structural institutional power, without significant money or resources. So Constantine was more like actually just saying, okay, you win. (laughs) Real quick, what do you think are some of the advantages when we got to actually have people, like we use the language today called Covo or Bivo, and I don't think they probably used that language back then, but the practices were there. You were able to pay people to set aside time to accomplish particular things that advanced the gospel. What do you think were some of the advantages that came during that time? Yeah, I I would say one of the redemptive things that God did through that is, you know, the church valued marriage and fidelity and family. The church valued the sanctity of life. It's like, we're not going to abide infanticide. It's not okay. We're not going to throw children out we're going to adopt them and we're going to care for them, you know, caring for the weak and the sick hospitals. Yeah. So the values that the church carried began to fill the empire and that began to actually change the culture and even became institutionalized with laws. So it's this whole idea of like human dignity and really Western civilization goes back to Jesus. And then before that, the Jewish people. It's this whole idea like that history is going somewhere and it's meant to be redemptive and better and progressive. It's this idea that all people are created equal and have worth. And man, I can't imagine that we could even put a price tag. I mean, it's like beyond priceless that because they shook hands, those values began to become normative and even laws. I'm grateful that we've had laws where it's like, no, you can't kill children anymore. Sorry. You can't just throw them out. It's like... Thank God, because that's what the world was like. Right. People don't know that. It's like if it weren't for Jesus, you wouldn't have hospitals, you wouldn't have schools, you wouldn't have a foster care system, you, you wouldn't have, I mean, just fill in the blank. Right. You know? And so that's huge. And I also think, you know, it allowed the church to become a place and a people where there were some who had time now to, for example, the great kind of enlightenment intellectual pursuit to explore the wonders and the depths of who God is and create what now is almost an endless library of theological reflection that so deepens and informs our faith. What's wonderful about our faith is it comes down to Jesus is Lord, and then you can double click and go to the Apostles' Creed, and that's really all you need. But why would you rob yourself of like, let's just go ahead and jump into this bottomless ocean and explore all the beauty and the life and the wonder of like thousands of years of theological reflection and 
to understand who God is. So those are a couple things. And I do think that one of the things that's unique about church leadership is if you're a butcher and a baker and candlestick maker, you're called to be a working theologian. No one gets a pass on that. But you know what? To have some of us freed up, like the early church, where it's like, these guys, they need to be freed up. They need to teach. Like They need time to study the scriptures. And this is so important that we should actually give them some money so that they don't have to be working 45 hours a week. We want some people freed up to do that work who are gifted and called to do that. Yeah, like where would the church be without uh, Augustine? And where would the church be without uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and Anselm and some of these other people that really helped to bring uh, some clarity of thought throughout the, the years? It's so good. Let me push you to, to zoom up into uh, the word professional as we're using it right now. How did that happen? Like the professional that we're talking about right now, how did that happen? And what are some of the advantages that have perpetuated the gospel saturation in our day and age, the last 20, 25 years. You know, if you think about American history and what happened after World War II, there began to be a movement in America. It started with kind of the required need of America to respond to the conflict with the Axis powers. Like we had to create a military industrial complex and that had huge ramifications across the board in America, like how food got distributed, how plastic and supporting materials got made. And what happened is the emergence of these really large corporations and then kind of a managerial approach or the bureaucratic expert, uh, the technocrat. There's a wonderful book that's called The Storm Before the Calm by Thomas Friedman, where he he does an analysis of this period in American history and basically extrapolates like that, the technocrat, the manager, the expert overseeing kind of a corporate hierarchical system. We needed that to respond to the challenge that we were up against. The whole world was literally hanging in balance, but that became the new normal on how things got done. And that profoundly influenced the church. So high, high ingenuity in the marketplace and in industrial. Right, and now the, the role of the pastor is like, I, I'm the manager, I'm the expert, I'm kind of, we use the word bureaucrat as a negative now, but at the time it was a title of honor actually early on. It was like, I have expertise that's needed, you know, that brings me above the crowds to solve these complex problems and create this complex systems that will answer these massive problems. And so, that's where you look at the church and it begins to become like a corporation, you know, and now most churches or many churches at least have a structure and a strategy that's very similar to the marketplace. Like you typically have a CEO and a COO, like you have a lead pastor, you have quote unquote, a board of directors. And just like a corporation will have different departments. We have different departments and programs. We're offering goods and services uh, we're trying to do marketing. These have become normative. Like if you would jump back to the church 100 years ago, it did not look like that. Yeah, and smaller churches still don't typically still have a kind of a patriarch. But even smaller churches, I feel like so many of them feel like that's what they need to do to grow. And so even smaller churches are often even deeply influenced by that. So one one last piece to this, Rob, and then I'll uh, let, let you come at me with, with the question. Okay, if it was the Axis powers that the industrialists uh, leveraged to this ingenuity to, that was the problem it was created to solve. What was the problem this leadership professional 
professionalism structure was created to solve and what advantages have come out of it? Well, I, I mean, I, I think of uh, influential people like Billy Graham or I think of like an organization like World Vision or Compassion International. Those are historic in the history of the church and the good that World Vision and Compassion International are doing in the name of Jesus is unbelievable. It's literally today probably keeping millions of people alive, literally alive. Like if if all of those Christian quote unquote corporations or nonprofits or churches, if we shut down, millions of people would start dying almost immediately. You know, and and that's not to say look how great we are, but it just means there there's a, a way the church is scaled to do good in the world that is really, really beautiful and amazing. That a decentralized movement in the first 300 years it's not quite the same. It's like the collection of those small interventions and that we need that too, because that a lot of that work, that more corporate expression can't find. But I like to think of it as like an air war and a ground war. We still need the air war, but we've lost our ground war. A lot of the church has. And that's because we put so much emphasis on the professionalism, the kind of corporate expression of the church, the programs, the large initiatives that we've, we don't have a ground game. We're not really activating God's people to get to their maximum influence, to know what it really means to be a missionary disciple maker. And so it leaves this huge gap. I have personally gained so much from the things I've learned from these. And so it's kind of like, I want to take it from we say from professional to all God's people, I kind of want to edit it to say from just professional to professional and all God's people, because I love the advantages that have come from it. Disciples made, we consider this to be some really high potential for landscape changing disciple making principles and practices and tools. We have this way of approaching disciple making that we get to steward. God's helped us to see these things. And I want the very best professional practices that are out there. So we, we leverage traction, I mean, which is one of the best operating systems for business. It's like, I want the business people that are professionals to come in and help us build this ministry in a way that's the most efficient, timely, all these other things. So I don't want us to say we're advocating being unprofessional. No, sir. So I, I love all the advantages. We'll come back. I've got an, an interesting way to ask the more constructive view, but before then, you've got a question for me. I do. How have the professionalism of the church, when does it hamper? So like sometimes it is helpful. It's like, let's do things professionally. And even the two churches I gave most of my life to, I think one of the reasons we had credibility in our communities because we did things with excellence. And it communicated that Jesus and the message of Jesus is worth our very best efforts, right? But there's a shadow side to that. What do you see is the shadow side of that professionalism when it comes to God's people understanding who they are and what they're called to? That's really insightful. And it's making me remember when I first came to Westside. So Westside was about 5,000 people here in Kansas City when we were on staff there. And I had never been a part of a church that was bigger than really 400 prior to that. And I'd never been on staff of a church that was of any greater size than that. And so I was really scared, but I was invited by one of my really, really close friends, Dan Sutherland, to come be on that team and family and friends and all confirmed I had the gifting and whatnot to do it. So I, it was a big risk to me to take that job. I was afraid of it. But I remember getting there when I first got and put my stuff in the office. Uh, Rob, I think I've told you this before. I put my box of stuff in the office when I first moved out here and I sat down in the chair and then I had this uneasy feeling in my stomach and I ran to the bathroom and threw up because it was just overwhelming to me. I was so scared of this job. And that's helpful context for where I'm going to go in with this. 
As soon as the first day started, I experienced something I had never experienced before. And that is everybody on my team and everybody on all the other teams, because of my position in the church, started treating me more like, I'm going to use this term, it's not necessarily appropriate, started treating me like sort of a demigod, more than I had ever experienced in my life. It's like, these people think I'm really smart. I'm walking around and I could feel like I'm not in the lower level of admin or I'm not in the lower level even of director. I'm on the executive team. And I even remember telling Carol about it. I just feel different. And I remember thinking, I better not take this sense of this is how I am to be treated home with me because it won't fly at home. And I remember thinking, do I want to milk this? Because it feels really good to be treated with such dignity and with such respect and with such deference. Or do I want to kind of help people not treat me like this? So you asked, what's the potential dark side of professional? And I would sum it up with that context by saying, I might actually believe the press that I'm actually as good as these people think that I am. Come on. Can I share an anecdotal story? Sure. I remember we were hosting a conference at Granger. There's kind of an up and coming church leader uh, who's every everybody's name would recognize right now if I said, but I won't. And uh, I was just going to pop into the green room to just welcome him, thank him for the time. And I popped in and he had some folks from his team and uh, went around, shook their hands and said hi to this person. And I used their first name. And one of the other people said, don't do that. I was like, I'm, I'm what? I was just confused. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. What did I do? And they said, he's the pastor please do not call him by his first name. We all call him pastor. And we would like while we're here, if you would also honor him this way. And it was just a weird moment where I was like, oh, I thought we were all just brothers and sisters in Christ. And <laughs> so I kind of like awkwardly backed out of the room. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it really scared me. I was like, what kind of culture is being created where you literally will rebuke a stranger who's just giving a warm greeting. And that doesn't happen overnight. I love that you had that kind of reflection to go, whoo, I gotta be aware of this thing. Yeah, and thankfully, thanks for sharing that because that really does kind of put like, that's that's the end of that trail. If you keep drinking that Kool-Aid, I could have kept writing that up and there was something sinister about it that I didn't like. And I had this, I was fortunate, very, very fortunate to have a model of Dan Sutherland who had much more reason to have that respect. And he acted as if that doesn't even exist. He was the most deferential to other people, the most self-effacing. And I was like, no, I want that. I want that. I'm not going to drink this and even made that something with my wife and friends that I was just like, I get treated differently and I don't want to, I don't want to live uh, with that fuel in my blood. I just don't want that fuel uh, in my soul. Why does it happen? Because man, it feels good to be respected like that. What's the dark side of it? Not just that sense that leads to the kind of experience you had at that uh, conference, but here's what I think it really, here's the real dark side is if people think I'm this good, then I better deliver this good to keep this reputation. And all of a sudden you have an expectation of self and you invite the organization to have an expectation of you that you can deliver beyond your capacity consistently over time. Yeah, and and it, what it reminds me of too is you look at Jesus and he's kind of picking the rabbi school dropouts and the nobodies and he's saying, you can do this. Like you can do the things I've been doing you'll do even greater things than I've been doing. And I'm giving you all authority. <laughs> I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And so 
the example of Jesus is the one who is highest descends the lowest to empower the lowest so they can ascend to the highest. Yeah. And think about it. If I've got that pressure on me to be more than I can be, and it isn't Jesus doing it through me because I've basically squelched him out worrying about how I can deliver as well as I did last time, next time. He gets squished out. The real potential of heaven coming through me gets squished. And all of a sudden I'm left creating this plastic persona of a person that ends up having to get that need met from somewhere because I know I'm a sham. I mean, this is, sorry if this is just going too deep, too fast, but that's where the breakdown, people ask, where does the breakdown of these people come from? They've got it all. They're sitting on top of this huge organization. They've got all this money. They've got this resources. They've got the clothes. They've got all these other things. Where does the meltdown happen? It happens right there. They feel the pressure to deliver at a pace that no human really is capable of doing consistently over a long period of time. However, the inverse of that, Rob, this is where you were heading. And this is where I'm so glad that I refuse to go down that line personally. Jesus and me which is really what he was saying. It's like, Peter and James and John, you can do this because I'll be in you. I'm going to leave and I'm going to send the Spirit and through you, I'll do this. And you'll do far greater things. Well, the pressure isn't on me at that point. It's on my obedience, not my competence. And that's one of the huge phrases for us at Disciples Made. In fact, that's our statement of the year for our ministry. We will always determine that obedience is greater than competence. Bring your best competence, but you bring an obedience first because we want Jesus in you, not you. And that's where I've consistently found that he does more in me than I think I can do on my own. And I never have the pressure to be something that I'm not, but I get the freedom to actually let him be all that he is. So did that answer that question? Yeah, it does. And I I think for all of us that are listening to this podcast that are in a leadership role in the church, I hope for me at the end of this game, that first my wife and my daughters, and then the leaders, missionaries, and microchurch leaders and members in the underground, at the end of this thing, I hope they feel like, it just seemed like Rob wanted to give away the authority that he wanted to see us. He was more committed to me reaching my maximum influence than it seemed like he was to his own influence. Whatever resources or platform or whatever he had that he seemed to think it was for us not for himself, and that we would create pathways and environments that I hope disorient people the way that Peter, James, and John and those disciples had to be like, what? You believe that about us? <laughs> you think you think we can do that? And then like, you'll actually walk with me? Encourage and support and coach. And that's really the heart, I hope, of the underground. I, and I hope that's the heart of Disciples Made. I hope that only deepens and never changes. And I hope that that becomes the culture of thousands and thousands of churches. Well, it ought to. You know, Jesus said, if you try to, to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. I mean, this is a practical outliving of that. Try to hold on to professional, you'll lose it. Lose your professionalism for me. That doesn't mean don't have it, but is it completely subjected to my authority and my rule? Yes, then you'll find it and find it in greater and greater spades. That will be our story. That's the reason we made that phrase the subject of this year for the whole year. And we'll repeat it at our team meetings over and over and over. Last question for you. This feels like we're going backwards a little bit because I really love where we landed. And by the way, Rob, before moving on, you do model that. Uh, You do model the how do I leverage what God's given me for the us. All right. So here's my last question. Wrap up with this. There is an economic term called opportunity cost. 
opportunity cost. And the definition of opportunity cost is the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. An example of opportunity cost is a student ends up spending three hours and 20 bucks at the movies the night before a final exam. The opportunity (laughs) cost was the time that they could have spent studying and they could have used that money on something else besides what he spent at the movie. So what is the opportunity cost if a church leader ignores this shift before the coming ice age? Again, I'm assuming that an ice age is coming. Right. Uh, We've had a winter storm. Yeah. yeah. This is good, man. I think an ice age is going to be coming. Hopefully it'll be a little less hard to detect than something severe. What's the opportunity cost if a church leader ignores this shift before that happens? So I want to talk about a guy named James. His coach is Corey, Corey Osborne, who's on the ops team. James is a guy who's been incarcerated because of some poor decisions in the past, but he's met Jesus. He's been found Jesus for three years, and he's now a disciple maker. And uh, he's part of a network of microchurches called Share the Hope. They have another microchurch emerging. So I think when you see someone like James, who's leading this community of new disciples of the formerly incarcerated and addicted community, and they are white hot with the fire and passion of Jesus, and literally, you're talking now hundreds of families whose stories are being changed. And when you begin to realize if we multiply that, which is actually about activating James where he is and equipping him where he is, and then providing a coach and then creating a support structure so that he's not alone. And that starts to get multiplied in a city. That's a game changer versus if instead of launching the underground, It's like, I'm going to do a church plant and I'm please, I'm not attacking anybody right now. I'm just trying to, (laughs) I'm just trying to do an honest, like just reflection. And like Corey and I and the ops team, we're like, we're the people that just preach on the weekend. And then we designed the programs and we're trying to get James to like invite his friends to be into the programs that we designed and we're really smart. So maybe a few of his friends would come. I don't think it would be like what we're experiencing right now, which actually feels like a viral disciple making movement. It would still help probably a few of James's friends, maybe, but I don't know if it would because I don't speak the language of James's friends like he does. So when you start to do the exponential math on that, that's the opportunity cost and it's the potential loss is huge. So let's just say James and the ministry to date is... Is it safe to say 250 people? Oh, and their network of relationships? Oh, yeah. Okay, so 250 times James, and let's say 200 churches were in this area that were doing this kind of thing, and they all have 200 people in it. So 200 churches with 200 people, I'm not real good at math, but that's, what, 4,000 that are all released to be a James. 250 times 4,000 is what? I have no idea. <laughs> so we're just talking 200 churches with 200 people released to be a James who influenced. We're, we're asking a question about opportunity cost. And what we're doing is starting to illustrate what might be left on the table. And you said you don't want to offend, but we need to let me press into this a little bit. Yeah, four, 40,000 people is what is what Hannah's telling me. I don't know many churches that get to 40,000. And that's just the beginning because once you get to 40,000, you can't stop it for a really long time. There's a passage in the scripture about the watchman. 
And the watchman is the person who, while the rest of the city sleeps, gets up in the tower and watches to make sure that no enemy comes and attacks. Like, if they see anybody off in the distance, an enemy starting to camp around, torches and whatnot, they alert the town, they wake them up, they get all the people ready to fight and defend the town. And the picture is that if the watchman falls asleep and the city gets ransacked without warning, then that's the watchman's fault. And I'll never forget, I don't know if you know this name, John Gerstner, a mentor to R.C. Sproul, who was a mentor to me. John Gerstner, I was listening to one of his uh, training tapes in theology years and years ago. I used to you know, install ceramic tile and wood floors and stuff for a living to make my way through college. And I would listen to these systematic theology tapes and Gerstner said, You pastors, you're the watchman. I mean, because he had that scowly voice. You're the watchman, and if you fall asleep and you let the enemy into the camp and they take it, mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, okay, well, we can't really look at the torches and see the enemy camping, but if we are leaving that much opportunity cost for the kingdom vibrancy as a whole, then we've got to ask, did the enemy get in somehow? And we not even feel it even worse. Did we let the enemy get in, steal that from kingdom potential, and we actually profited off of it? That's about as far as I want to go with that. I think, Rob, we would both say, bring your very, very best potential. But keep that potential, that professional spirit, the training that we are fortunate to have because we live in such an economically fluent society. Get all the training, get all the brilliance that you can, but subject it to the daily obedience to the king so that he's the one that's king and not us. Last thoughts? Whatever platform you have, so all that education or training, how do you invest it as deeply as you can over time in a way that's reproduced so that it gets out to as many people as you can? And and what's cool about Share the Hope is now it's multiplying to a point where uh, Corey, you know, has been their key coach and catalyst. Most of them won't even know who Corey is. They know James. (laughs) You know, and James is in the equipping gathering that I helped lead on Sunday night. But last Sunday night, Myron Pierce, I was like, we invited Myron to come. Here's our platform, man. Equip our missionaries. And James lit up. He said, Myron, this is so helpful. So what's great is that whole thing's happening. And most of them will never know the ops team. And it's, it's okay because they don't need to. And I think in that posture is the possibility of genuine movements of disciple making. As long as we keep centralizing it, where we're the ones who really have the microphone, have the platform, and even the ministries that we're creating kind of support me having the microphone and the platform. So we have to have children's ministry and first impressions. And, and I value those programs and ministries. But I'm also saying we have to be self-aware of what you mentioned, Brian, like those could actually end up just all supporting a handful of people on a platform a few hours a week. Yeah. It's intoxicating too. It is. But I don't think it's going to make a significant dent in the lostness of our cities. The data is in on that. We've been doing that as hard and as fast as we can to the tune of billions of dollars for about 30 years. And we're still losing ground. Yeah. But we don't have to. Hey, we don't have to. Next week, we got a guy who, yes. uh, his name's he Ralph ex- Moore. Yes, who, and he did it a different way. He did it a different way, and there's, what, 2,400 churches, he said, yes. that are in his wake. He doesn't even know all the pastors of the churches that he has helped plant, because when he looks out on a Sunday morning to see the people that have come, he doesn't see sheep he has to feed, he sees something else. We do not want you to miss 
the podcast with Ralph Moore. So make sure that you click that subscribe button and join us next week for the Disciples Made podcast. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com.